It's the summer of 1982, and you're back in the cinema to see another alien movie after Steven Spielberg's heartwarming family adventure, E.T., enchanted you and the world a mere two weeks ago. You have pretty high expectations for this feature, what with it having the same source material as the 1951 film Thing from Another World, and you're ready for a good scare. However, as the lights dim and John Carpenter's horrifying vision begins to unfold, you come to realise that this film is not what you expected. As each dreadful and gory scene plays out at an almost agonising pace, you become more and more repulsed and convinced that you never should have seen this film and that perhaps no one else should see this film either. When you're finally allowed to escape from the theatre, you'll learn that you're not alone in feeling this way. In fact, almost everyone feels this way. You don't know who this John Carpenter is, but you're damn sure he's never going to make another studio film ever again. As the reviews roll in, you can't help but agree that it was cold, sterile, nihilistic, instant junk, that it was only entertaining if the viewer needed to see spider-legged heads and dog autopsies. And when Cinema Fantastic magazine prints issue with the thing on its cover asking, is this the most hated film of all time? You know it's over. The horrible film will never again see the light of day, and you can't help but be glad for that. Fast forward 20 years and everything you thought you knew about John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing will be challenged as a wave of critical reassessment and redefinition of genre take a totally opposite appraisal of the once reviled film. True to the very essence of John W. Campbell's novella, The Thing proves in more ways than one that not everything is as it first appears and sometimes you really can't trust your own judgement. with my toilet and whether or not we will have one for a period of time. Well, we found out that they are going to replace the tiles, that they're going to remove the toilet and replace all of the tiles in there. And our landlord is going to give us a portaloo. However, they're going to remove the toilet this Friday and then have just two days over the weekend where we don't have a toilet and nothing's happening. And then it's going to take them another week to get it all done. So we're going to have no toilet for like 14 days. This is like Soviet Yugoslavia or something. <laughs> there aren't that many tiles and like they're doing the laundry as well. So so there's like not going to be any washing machine. It's going to be very interesting period. <laughs> and if we record next week, then I can tell you all about my experiences with the portaloo. Live from Amelia's mining camp in 1849. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, God. 
Yes. Well, you know, I mean, it is a first world problem. I will say that, but I don't know. I feel, I feel like having access to a, a toilet is is fairly. I feel like that's a universal thing that people desire. Well, so. well, I mean, it is a step up from our landlord being like, "Oh, are you guys going on a holiday anytime soon?" Because they didn't <laughs> want to pay for a portaloo. So it's like, <laughs> well, no, we're not actually. But uh, can you just give us a toilet? They just really were resistant to giving us a toilet, even though they were taking our toilet away. Anyway. Something like that happened um, when I was a kid, and our landlord tried to pretend that he couldn't have it fixed because he couldn't walk. And I don't know how that would, like, relate to, like, calling a plumber or whatever it was, but also, like, he could walk. The man just, like, faked (laughs) paralysis so that he wouldn't have to do landlord shit. Landlord's fucking... who, Who has a good one? Nobody. No, there's no, there's no good landlord. But like Don Knotts on Three's Company, I don't know who the other good landlords are. It's, it's definitely not a, that's not a glamorous career. But also, it shouldn't be a career because people shouldn't own multiple properties. So whatever. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> this is for our other podcast. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Childs. What is this? What's, the kind of- What's going on? What's the kind of- hey, Palmer, what is it? I don't know. Wait, Childs. Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said. Now move. Damn it. All right. Well, I guess we should begin this thing. Um, how the fuck do you start these things? How do people, how, what do we do? I like that you keep saying thing. <laughs> I know. It's like thing. when we were like, thing, oh, the thing, 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 Amelia, what about the thing next week? And you're like, oh, yeah, the thing. Well, for the thing, we're going to be talking about the thing. <laughs> I know. It's very difficult to, like, tease it because I'm like, the thing. And it just, it sounds like I'm being purposefully vague. And I'm not, I promise. But there's really no other way to say it unless I say the whole thing and the year it came out, which <sighs> I can barely say the name John Carpenter as it is. So... <laughs> I mean, it's no surprise that he gave the thing a dumb name when he also named a movie Halloween H2O. <laughs> Just add water. Hey guys, Tiff here with a quick correction. We are aware that John Carpenter was not involved in the making of the film Halloween H2O, which was in fact marketed as Halloween H2O, not H20. We know, it's cool, it's all good. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> That's how Mike keeps surviving. He's been a mermaid the whole time. Every time I like see Halloween H2, I'm just like, just add water. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not. It's like H20 because it's the 20th anniversary. But Oh, I've been calling it Halloween H20. <laughs> Would it have been a better movie if like Mike Myers was a mermaid? We can't say it wouldn't have been a better movie, you know? I think we could write that screenplay. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, at this point... Is there anything we could add to the Halloween, like, canon that would be outside the realm of what's already fucking happened in <laughs> Halloween? So if they're going to let Rob Zombie do whatever the fuck he did to it in those two movies, we've got precedent to make it better. The, uh, one, one suggestion I have is that, you know, because Mike does a lot of creeping around and I think he should be wearing clown shoes. You just get a well, little squeaky every time. We we've suggested Heelys. Yeah, oh, got a blast. I forgot about the Heelys. Got a blast. Then yeah, he, he's he got a blast. That explains that explains how he's able to like transverse like houses like so fast. So somebody Jamie Lee's <laughs> running out of one door and he's coming out the other like Scooby Doo. He's got to be healing in it. He's so speed. We got to save this for our Halloween episode. We can't get into this now. <laughs> he's all our good Heelys material. Already distracted. 
Okay, let's start this thing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. Today in the basket, I am presenting John Carpenter's 1982 film, The Thing. And with me are my two co-hosts, Candice. Hi. And Tiffany. Hello. So first things first, I have a few things from the mini episode that I need to address. Oh, yeah. All right. (laughs) Roast time. Well, one, I'm not dead and I'm wasn't gravely ill when it was recorded i just sounded like i was you sounded gravely ill i did that i can admit to that i sounded like i'd been chain smoking for 50 years and then was also in the late stages of emphysema but (laughs) 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 but you're not refuting that you were in a tragic skydiving accident well it wasn't tragic because i'm still here um (laughs) i won't For my own safety, I won't go into it too deeply. I don't want to end up in prison, this way at least. That aside, the other thing I will say is that there are a couple of of things. I I listened to the episode, contrary to my statements that I would not listen to any of this podcast. I've been forced to listen to this podcast. (laughs) And... (laughs) I mean, it's weird being like on the outside of a podcast as it is, like as a listener, but then also knowing, oh, that's my podcast. I know these things that they don't know about and I could say it, but I am also not on this podcast. (laughs) So um, I think I had a few Zezu Pitts facts that I can drop. Uh, Candice was speculating whether or not she had started making the shorts at, was it 1930 when um, she was in Sin Takes a Holiday? She hadn't yet. Uh, mm-hmm. They were on the horizon, though. They were about like 1931 is when On the Loose came out with Thelma Todd. And so that's my fact, and it makes me sound like I know anything about movies when, in fact, I don't. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, you knew the fact, and I was just churning out like gross factual errors, like I'm, you know, flipping ones <laughs> in a strip club, you know, just wild speculation well get ready for more of that because unlike candace and tiffany i am not a researcher not a writer and this is going to be very interesting my presentation to you all i'm very very excited i keep saying this but i'm hyped (laughs) don't i i'd say let's move those expectations right down (laughs) let's just manage some expectations i did have uh a title for this already, I thought, um, because these two haven't heard the intro, but they will. But my quote for this was, is this the most hated movie of all time? Not clickbait. That was my (laughs) quote for the title of this episode. And on that, let's get into it. As we all know, The Thing is quite a lauded horror film now. It was, however, not always that way. But we'll get into that later. I'm going to start with the beginning, which is the development of the thing. So a lot of people uh, assume that the thing is a remake of the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World, which was then an adaptation of the John W. Campbell novella, Who Goes There? Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us is one pole from the other. However, it's not necessarily classed as a remake because it's actually just another adaptation of that 
original novella. Development began in the mid-1970s when producers David Foster and Lawrence Terman floated the idea of a new adaptation of Who Goes There. And so they had seen the original film, uh, which was directed by Howard Hawks and Christopher Nyby. Now, please, I'm going to get so many names wrong, but I also just don't care <laughs> that I get them wrong. So if any nerds like comment meanly about it, I just, I just won't fucking read it. So... <laughs> I haven't said anything right this whole time. So they had seen the film and they enjoyed it, but the, they Foster and Terman really wanted to develop something that more closely resembled the original novella. So John Carpenter was first approached in 1975 to direct, but he was at that point uh, a, an independent filmmaker. Universal, who were the studio, was the studio behind it, felt that he wasn't exactly a safe bet and instead approached the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hopper. Hooper. Jeez, fucking Christ. As he was already under contract with them. Here they they hit a roadblock, though, because Universal rejected Hooper's vision for the film and then removed him as director, as they would. Uh, and then this was followed by rejections of several different writers and directors, um, because they all made picture, pitches to Universal and Universal's like, no, nope, we hate everything that you're about. <laughs> so eventually they did go back to John Carpenter after the success of what we were just talking about, Halloween. So he, through that project, gained a lot of credibility. And so from that point on, he was very loosely attached to the project and it was understood that he would eventually become the director. Uh, and then, yeah, there was a few more comings and goings and almost walk walkouts by John Carpenter, but eventually writing started and production began. And then we were on our way to creating the thing. And again, like the production for the thing, it seems very tumultuous, but not as crazy tumultuous as some of the other films that we have coming in the future. It's no island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> There's no witchcraft involved, to my knowledge. Just the witchcraft that kept Kurt's hair well, so we'll flowy and luscious. That. I do have a note on that. But again, several different writers were approached before it ended up in the hands of Bill Lancaster. Um, he initially rejected the offer, thinking the film would be a straight remake. But when Carpenter was confirmed as the director, he said, oh, well, maybe I will do it. Uh, and then several of the characters in the original novel were made a bit more modern. So McReady, uh, originally a meteorologist, became a tough loner described in the script as 35, helicopter pilot, likes chess, hates the cold, the pay is good. <laughs> so <laughs> Lancaster aimed to create an ensemble piece where one people one person emerges the hero instead of having a Doc Savage-type hero from the start. So it took him ages to write it, several months. I mean, it took me ages to write the notes for this, so I can understand that. When it got to casting, Kurt Russell and his long, luscious, flowing hair uh, was actually the last person to be cast, which is is crazy to me. Yeah. Because he's such, wow. a, such a seminal part of the film. Like, it's, it wouldn't work without Kurt Russell. <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, John Carpenter, he had wanted to, he had worked with Kurt Russell before, but he wanted to keep his options open. And <laughs> like, he was playing hard to get. Like, he was like, oh, I don't know. Um, and so they considered Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, <laughs> and Nick Nolte. Wow. The role. And they that is so fun. Okay, because Bridges, I, I could see because McCready's kind of yeah. a, a little bit of a Bridges error to him, but Nick Nolte in the thing 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'd probably love this movie even more. It would be a much worse movie. It would be a terrible movie, but that would be very yeah. Fun. They all um, either declined or were unavailable. But eventually, Carpenter stopped playing coy and they cast <laughs> Russell. Like some of the casting decisions, like they nearly had Jay Leno in this. Whoa. Like as as for what yeah, part like for, do you one know? Of, uh, for the more comedic roles they had like Gary Shandling considered and fucking Jay Leno and it's just like <laughs> what kind of movie were you expecting to make like <laughs> Jay Leno oh my god parallel universe of this movie with like Jay Leno and McNulty and fucking Gary and Shandling. Ernie Hudson was considered for uh, Keith David's role as Childs so it could have been a very different film and in saying that. Keith David, this was his first significant film role because before this he was a stage actor. Uh, But eventually um, when Carpenter had decided on Russell, he said it was because Russell was reliable and then he wanted to be sure that the actor he cast would withstand the grueling filming conditions. But that doesn't explain why it took him so fucking long to cast him. The other thing of note in the casting is Richard Mauser, I assume that's how it's said, uh, who played the role of Clark, turned down a role in E.T. to be in the thing, <laughs> which we'll find out later was very financially unwise. <laughs> what role did he did he turn down? Did he turn down the part of, of E.T. himself? Was he going to be Elliot? <laughs> I'm not sure which role he turned down, but um, it's definitely to his detriment. <laughs> Keith David is He's very so good, good in this, though. He's got a good understanding of like where well, the camera I think, is. Um, In my readings, it said that he had to do a lot of work to kind of tone down his approach. Like, he was very stagey, so he was all about projecting the character and his feelings and everything. So he had to pull that back for screen. Uh, And apparently the other actors helped him him do that. But you'd never be able to tell. No. He he comes across as Mm -hmm. really good and really... I mean, you connect to him a lot. Yeah, he's he's like intense, and um, but intense in a, in a good and very, like very natural, like like I don't want to, I don't know a, a proper adjective because he's also so good in They Live. So clearly, he works well with Carpenter under Carpenter's direction, or despite Carpenter's direction. I don't know. I mean, maybe Carpenter fucking sucks to work with. I have no idea. <laughs> so. But I mean, really it's list. very possible that John Carpenter could suck to work with, just considering some of the other things that <laughs> come up. But uh, considering the fact that he didn't have enough uh, strong enough of an instinct to immediately I know. cast Kurt, I know. Is, I think uh, some of this strike against him. shit in here. I'm just like, maybe, maybe John Carpenter isn't that smart. <laughs> that would also be a good episode title. John Carpenter isn't that smart. <laughs> maybe the cast is it's an all-male cast which it had its place uh and bill lancaster who wrote the script explained that the lack of women in the thing was like this in reality there aren't any women in these kinds of situations i remember thinking as a kid that the obligatory love scenes in horror films interrupted the action so already there was not a lot of opportunity for women to take any kind of role in this adaptation which is very annoying because of misogyny But what makes it, I think, even more annoying to me is that since the film has been made and come out and all of this, that people still think that it's right. It was an all-male production, which I would say is not a good, I guess, assessment. There's a review I saw, which is like, What the Thing Loses by Adding Women by Noah Berlatsky um, of, I think it's The Atlantic. He suggests that adding women would dilute the strength of the brotherly male-to-male platonic love expressed in the film and would also soften the paranoid nihilism by adding empathy. And I Ooh. think that's like a gross 
I know it's like a gross exaggeration and perpetuation of the idea that women can only be coded as empathetic and that their sole place in the genre of horror is to be the victim that dies to motivate the hero or a weaker female hero who somehow manages to turn the tables on the villain. And it's just, it's really tired view of women, but also strips them of like any level of complexity. That's just so fucking annoying. I just am so sick of it. It's just the Madonna horror thing, right? Like, yeah, it's like, they can only be love interests. They can, they only muddy the waters and it's like with their like empathetic hearts. And it's like, well, actually some women can have, no empathy it's like (laughs) also like what platonic love what platonic male bonding exists in this movie they're all constantly at odds with each other one other thing i think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over windows found some shredded long johns but the name tag was missing they could be anybody's nobody nobody trusts anybody now We're all very tired. I, for one, in my reading, can people stop being horny for the monster? Because (laughs) some of these descriptions of the thing are actually, I'm like, this is why hornies don't have rights and shouldn't be allowed to speak because some of these descriptions I've had to read, I'm like, please be quiet. How long do you think it'll be before we get to an episode with no hornies whatsoever? I feel like we'll never get Um, Yeah, I'm starting to doubt it. No. I don't think there's a movie that doesn't have horny content because that's what people go to the movies to see. And not me. I can't, I honest (laughs) to God can't think of one. Yeah, but I guess I think this interpretation really annoys me because the primary drama in in the thing is not it's not strictly a male experience like everyone experiences paranoia and like mistrust and all of that like i don't see that as being diluted by including a woman part of it is also the 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 problem that i think it's kind of um people think of like alien and they think of ripley and it's like men try to double they try to bend over backwards to like you know be a male feminist and they're like well if you know if a woman was there then you know things would have gotten taken care of you know things would be fixed at you know as if as if the presence of that that you know kind of male fantasy of like the woman who kicks ass and looks good while doing it is like a plausible thing in every context and it's like it's a plausible thing in certain contexts like it works in alien and it works for really specific reasons but that doesn't mean that if you injected a female character into the thing she'd be like necessarily like a force for like you said a a force for for good and and empathy and understanding and fixing problems like she could be just as much of a fuck up as like windows yeah exactly and he actually does name drop alien and ripley in it and he calls her the hot rip i'm like please be quiet what he he does all this float this idea that the narrative and the thing is actually about homophobia and that the thing wherein manly men are transformed into horrible monsters at the collapse of their identity is like a homo homophobic reading i don't necessarily see that he then goes on to describe the thing the thing of the title is an alien protoplasm that devours and mimics other organisms it passes if you will as human one by one the men on the base are devoured and replaced this replacement often has a queasy sexual component One of the researchers, for example, is covered in slithery, bondage-like tentacles. In the film's most spectacular scene, another scientist 
reveals his thingness when a replica of his own head bursts from his stomach in a twisted all-male mockery of birth. I'm like, dude, can we not be horny? You know, um, I I don't know anything about this fella, <laughs> but I have to say it's 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 an interesting take to think that you know, uh, like repulsive, slithering, sexual overtones suggests homosexuality. <laughs> It's weird. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's one reading, I guess, but it's also like, I think what offends me the most is the fact that they're saying that the breakdown of identity leads to homosexuality. That's a shitty reading. I mean, I think, I think there's like a legitimate conversation to be had about, um, like how masculinity is is depicted in the thing and about masculine about like homosexuality and how men relate to each other and how men fail to communicate things and how men are suspicious of each other and all those things because men have fucked up dynamics because they lack rational thinking um which then they think that they're only rational you know what i mean they like the selective rationality or whatever but uh, i i don't know i don't I, my big problem with that theory um of it being some sort of gay symbolism is that then i'd have to think about wilford brimley in a sexual situation (laughs) it is a bad take i mean there are a lot of critical takes about the masculinity just in general like uh vice's patrick marlborough considered the thing to be a critical take on masculinity identifying the thing requires intimacy confession and empathy to out the creature but masculinity prevents this as an option so i guess it's it's uh, a reading which suggests that masculinity that's like throughout the film is really heavily masculine um, then prevents yeah. them from coming to a, a solution and to actively like discover the thing. And I don't necessarily think that inclu- the inclusion of a woman would muddy those waters. I don't think that oh, like a woman would necessarily have to be more empathetic and be like, oh, well, why don't we just trust each other? Like the idea that 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 men and women or like masculinity and homoeroticism or rationality and empathy are like inverse no. qualities is like very pat and like very black and white thinking, I think. And I think it, it, it definitely does not give the full, like give full like intellectual birth to what is going on in this movie i think it's way more complex than that but i appreciate that they're able to scam publications (laughs) into giving them money yeah lukewarm takes Uh, (laughs) secure your bag but i guess we'll move on from that and talk about some of the the filming there it was i guess a pretty straightforward filming in the scheme of things uh it began in 1981 in juneau alaska um and it lasted for about 12 weeks before then they moved to the Universal lot where it was outside 38 degrees Celsius, that's 100 degrees in Fahrenheit, and that the sets inside were climate controlled to minus 2 degrees Celsius, that's 28 degrees Fahrenheit, to facilitate their work. So, I mean, just the complete disregard for the environment in the filming of this is very telling of the time. Um Universal can keep their sets cold, but not their vaults. They um, couldn't find a, a big enough refrigerator to keep it cold. So instead, they collected as many portable air conditioners as they could and closed off the stage and used humidifiers and misters to add moisture to the air. So that's probably another reason why Kurt's hair looks so luscious and long. 
But also before the filming, he grew his hair out for a year. That's a long time for it to not be that long. Some people have slow growing hair, Tiffany. I mean, (laughs) but also, I mean, that's the only kind of method acting I'll approve. (laughs) I was going to say. Yeah. God, stop stealing the words literally out of my mouth. Kurt brewing his luscious locks. Ten- tenderly tending to them is the only kind of method acting that's acceptable. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like digging through trash or whatever people do. I don't know. Um, so after that filming was completed, Carpenter went through the rough cut and he said, the film seemed to feature too many scenes of men standing around talking, <laughs> which, I mean, could be any fucking movie. Um, but he, re- he rewrote some already completed scenes that take place outdoors and shot on location in Stewart in British Columbia. In the Great White North, where Tiffany is from. I am. So now we'll move on to a couple of cool facts from filming. Kurt Russell almost killed himself with a stick of dynamite while filming. (laughs) 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 Which is definitely something that would happen to one of us on the film, like on a film set. Uh, Russell threw an actual stick of dynamite during a film towards, uh, during a scene towards the end of the film. He did not, however, anticipate it being so powerful. He was literally blown backwards after the device detonated. This take was left in the film. Fuck you too! If you got it, use it. That's the universal way, baby. <laughs> I'm wasting any tape at that point. I gotta keep those reels pumping. Also, in another thing that would happen to Ajib, Keith David broke his hand in a car accident the day before he was to begin shooting. Jesus Christ. Um, so he still came to filming the next day, but when Carpenter saw his swollen hands, he sent him to the hospital where it was punctured. Um, to reduce the swelling and then he was wearing a surgical glove beneath a black glove that was painted to resemble his complexion Um, (laughs) and for the first half of the film you don't see his left hand i was gonna say i'm like isn't child supposed to be like the weapons expert but you never actually see him handling any weapons that would explain why why. i've never broken a bone Um, you have to puncture a broken hand? I I assume it was from the swelling, but also, like, if it was broken, wouldn't it have needed to be in a cast? Is what I... You know what? Well, Dr. Universal (laughs) says... We gotta, we gotta stay on track here. We're already going over, under budget, you know, keeping the this fucking stage at sub-zero temperature. Yeah, we've got all our portable air conditioners on standby. We've got no fucking room for your broken hand. <laughs> Juneau, Alaska is also, like, super, super rural. My brother flew in there just a couple years ago, so not in 1982, and there was, like, one place to eat in the whole airport, and there was, like, a microwave in it. And you had to, like, microwave your own food. So I can only imagine what, what deprivations <laughs> Kurt and company were exposed to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess this is why John Carpenter was like, oh, I need to make sure they're all ready to withstand, you know, the conditions. And yet still Kurt's hair looked like that. So it kind of been that stressful. Throughout filming, they filmed a lot of scenes that were just cut from the end cut of the film. And then... They filmed an alternative ending. I mean, they thought the the film's original ending, which is the theatrical release version, was too bleak. 
I mean, it is quite ambiguous and, like, you're not left with a lot of hope for the future because it's literally just McCready and Child sitting there being like, mm, well, I don't know, I guess we're just going to breathe to death. <laughs> Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Um, so it's yeah, it's pretty, I guess, nihilistic. But um, obviously, Universal saw this and were like, I don't know about that. The exec Sidney Scheinberg disliked the ending, and he was like. Uh, think about how how the audience will react if they see the thing die with a giant orchestra playing. So, oh, my like, God. Obviously, he didn't understand Carpenter's vision. Um, so he wow. he did film multiple endings for it that were, like, a bit happy where McCready is rescued and he's proved to be not infected. But obviously Carpenter thought that would be too cheesy and stuck with his original ending. I mean, I'm glad that he did because it's definitely got more more of an impact. He should have stuck with his original ending for Halloween, which was like Donald uh, Donald Pleasance looks over at the the you know pile of leaves or whatever where Mike was, and then you just see him like healing off <laughs> into the distance. Do you know John Carpenter also wanted Donald Pleasance to be in this as McCready? Oh man, imagine. <laughs> The exact opposite end of the, the luscious lock spectrum. Um, I will say th- this was another fact I found out that there's a character obviously called McGreedy whose nickname is Mac and then there's also a character called Windows and there's a fact on IMDb which just says this is you know rep- reminiscent of the 80s computer war between Mac and Windows. This is just coincidental. Like of course it's <laughs> fucking coincidental like that they're just called this. IMDb word nearest are the worst <laughs> because they're always wrong. They're in very wrong about things everybody thinks they're a fucking critic we're gonna get into some critics who i think are wrong in a bit but like all, all of them, them are so oh, they're so wrong another aspect of the film that john carpenter wanted control over and ultimately ruined uh was the film score so he approached uh a neo uh, morricone sorry so he initially approached him and he flew to rome to convince him to take the job but then he made all of these, I guess, electronic scores and gave them to Carpenter. Carpenter was like, Carpenter's like I don't know about this. And then later, uh, Morricone was like, uh, why did you call me if you just wanted to do it on your own? And Carpenter said, I got married to your music. This is why I called you. So he, like, put together an hour's worth of music, but then Carpenter just took it and then, like, did his own <laughs> using it. But, I mean, it's not outside his realm of scoring. I guess it just has less sick guitar, which is something that we'd find in his later scores that he loved doing.
So what he said, Carpenter, this is Carpenter's version of the story. Uh, Morricone did all of the orchestrations and recorded for me 20 minutes of music. I could use wherever I wished without seeing any footage. I cut his music into the film and realized that there were places, mostly scenes of tension, in which his music would not work. I secretly ran off and recorded in a few days a few pieces to use. My pieces were very simple electronic pieces. It was almost tones. It was not really music at all, but just background sounds, something today you might even consider as sound effects. I don't know why all John Carpenter's quotes are like they were by someone whose first language is not English, but... He just is not great at speaking. He tells stories like like Grandpa Simpson, <laughs> like the Onion Belt, and they tie you know the Onion my Belt, which was the fashion at the time. It's like okay, Grandpa Carpenter, <laughs> hurry up. One trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere. Like the time I caught the ferry over to Shelbyville, I needed a new heel for my shoe, so I decided to go to Morganville which is what they call Shelbyville in those days. So I tied an onion to my belt, which was the style at the time. Now, to take the ferry cost a nickel, and in those days, nickels had pictures of bumblebees on them. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt. Which was his style at the time. Well, I, I guess now is a good, as good a time as any is to talk about the actual effects in the film, which is a huge selling point, I think, for the film. Uh, a lot of people, I've seen a few takes which are very dumb where they say that they date the film and they, you know, look so fake. And it's like, well, that's just part of it now. Obviously, sensibilities have changed, but like, the effects in the thing, I think, are on a whole different level of horror because they they look the way that they do. I hate that that shit where it becomes like talking about something being dated and it, it doesn't look real to me anymore. And it's it's a movie like it's it's an art form and you have to take it in the context that it was made. Well, exactly. And also, I think I guess to me, they're more horrifying because they look just like genuinely more disgusting and horrible than they would if they were made like on a computer like the yeah. the the effects in the thing they're so moist like just <sighs> like gross but like when are we is gonna have an episode without the word moist is what never. i'm asking. <laughs> never well we haven't got to necrophilia yet so i mean we're doing <laughs> That's true better on one front at least um, silver linings but these effects were uh, they were designed largely by Rob Bottin, who previously worked on Carpenter on the Fog. Um, he joined the project in the mid-1981 when pre-production was in proce- progress uh, and no design had been settled on for the alien. So there had been some preliminary sketches of what the creature would look like by uh, an artist at Universal, but he left the project after he was hospitalized following a traffic accident. Jesus. So, what is with people on this movie? Is it cursed? Is the thing cursed? Were he and Keith, Keith David in the same car? Did they hit each other? <laughs> Maybe. Did, was there some kind of conspiracy to get him off? Yeah. Just like Jimmy Hoffa. But in designing the thing's different forms, Botten explained that the creature had been all over the galaxy and this allowed it to call on different attributes as necessary, such as stomachs that transform into giant mouths, spider legs that sprout from heads. This is very annoying, but he was 21 years old. I hate that. When he 
did Fuck this. Off. And that he worked extremely hard um, on them, on the designs. The pressure he experienced caused him to dream about working on designs, some of which he would take like notes on after waking and that one of his abandoned ideas included a series of dead baby monsters which he deemed as too gross (laughs) so it's nice to know that he had a limit but he worked so hard on them that he had to be hospitalized for exhaustion and double pneumonia which i didn't realize just means that it's in both lungs and he had a bleeding ulcer how many hospitalizations are we at at this point (laughs) i know i think we're on jesus christ but yeah, he's, he didn't take a day off um, and that his dedication to the project saw him spend over a year living on the Universal lot, which is a nightmare in and of itself, and that he slept on the sets or in the locker rooms. So, I mean, I guess that's why he was 21 years old and working on it, because he had that kind of drive yeah. and dedication to it, because certainly I wouldn't be fucking yeah, I was going to say that. no one on earth would do that but a 21-year-old. But it's also like, was he in the union? Did he have, like, <laughs> anyone behind him? Where were his parents? Is there... Yeah, what was happening? But he was really sensitive about his creatures and that the cinematographer, Dean Cundy, said um, he was really sensitive about how much light he was allowed to put on them. We always sort of joked, if it was up to Rob, he would build the creatures to be incredibly interesting and imaginative, imaginative and then not put any light on them at all because he was afraid of showing them. He's like the flip side of Hen and Lauder, who's just so <laughs> proud of Belial. Yeah, p- pretty much. It's like Hen and Lauder was like, no, I'll make this thing and then I'll show it as much as I physically can. Whereas this guy's like, I'm making these awesome things, but I don't know if they're good enough to, like, put any light on. I gotta say, that's a level of insecurity that is very relatable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've all been there. I mean, even with this podcast, we're just like, should we? I'm already thinking of of dropping out after I've insulted Universal so many times (laughs) over the course of, like, two episodes. I'm definitely never going to work there ever, so. Well, um, yeah, that would bring us into the discussion like a lot of people use this as a test case between practical effects and cgi effects and you know we've all made our stance clear that there's a place for both i mean i don't necessarily like cgi it in and of itself looks very fake and like you see a cgi and you like you know that cgi yeah. so how yeah. is that how is that any less fake than yeah i'm not good, i'm thing? not ambivalent about it at all like fuck cgi There are a couple times when I've seen something. I think CGI is most interesting when it's used to do things like there's a little bit of CGI, I think, in in the new Tarantino movie to restore buildings and signs and things that I don't think are there anymore. I I feel like things like that or like I was really amazed just because I have to plug this movie because I thought it was it was quite enjoyable. Just know that these views are not. um, These do not reflect the podcast. They do not reflect those of the podcast. (laughs) Yes. But like they're able to CGI leo they're able to cgi i use it as a verb leo into the steve mcqueen role in the great escape and it's seamless and it's really awe-inspiring to see i mean it's 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 really it's really fantastic and it's like so something like that that obviously can't be achieved with practical effects for me is interesting because you can't you what what are you gonna do then you just dead men don't wear plaid okay all right okay fine that's a good point um but no for me it's like i i take practical effects you know 
10 out of 10 times because they have a richness and they have a warmth and they have a level of craftsmanship and dedication. And I understand that people are defensive of CGI because it employs so many people in the industry. And I got that. And those people. Yeah, I mean, there is a level of craft and work involved in CGI. And we're obviously not diminishing that. It takes, I mean, when you see a practical effect, you are less, you're more inclined to be like, oh, wow, that's so, how did they do that? Like, you're more. It, it it inspires more imagination and creativity, I guess, where it's like, wow, how did they achieve that? I really am curious about that. And it draws on a lot of history of, of Hollywood and old secrets about achieving things and specific technique. It's a lot of technique that's that's handed down from the very beginnings of the industry. Some of it is still incorporating things that come from the, from the origins, the, the the dawn of filmmaking, and that's interesting to see, and it's exciting to think about that there are techniques used on the thing that are older than any of the people involved in it. Yeah, and you can't say that of CGI, obviously. You know, it's like CGI employs a lot of people and gives a lot of people jobs, but like you know, most editors who are working now work in reality television because reality television, the whole narrative is shaped by editing, but that doesn't mean that like. I'm going to applaud people for working on the hills, you know, (laughs) like, sorry, but, you know, there should be a puppeteer in your place. We're pro puppets. It goes back to what we were talking about with pillow talk. It's like the level of craft. I just really appreciate when craft is present in a film, like I can see it demonstrated through, you know, whether it's the building of plot and character or whether it's in like set design or in effects, I think. It just adds a level of richness to a film that I guess is lacking a lot from some modern film. Like even in the, there is a remake technically of the thing, but it's not a remake because it's set as a prequel to the 1982 film. And it's basically, it's just a slasher film set in the Arctic, which is, it completely misses the point of like what the thing is about. But, like, because it is CGI and all of that, it just it's, it feels so hollow. I mean, and also there's, like, an element of, like, dealing with a practical effect, I think, generates in people, like, a limited amount of fear. Like, when you're, when you're acting against something that isn't there, it's not as intimidating as acting against something that's really there. Like, can you imagine, like, being in a, in a shark movie where you're just wading in a pond and you're, and you're fake yelling, you know, and, and they're going to CGI. I keep using that as a verb. I'm sorry. They're, they're going <laughs> to... They're going to, in post, add a a shark in there. It's very different from, you know, being in a tank on the Universal lot with a gigantic, malfunctioning, 20-foot-long robot that looks like a great white shark. Like, you're going to have a natural fright response that's going to give you a much more textured performance. (laughs) And 20 portable air conditioners. And 20 portable air conditioners. Like, yeah. Just the insistence that a level of artificiality is a bad thing in a movie is really strange to me because... It's a movie. Like you, it's a you movie. know, it's not, it's not real. real you know, this dog isn't really turning into a tentacle monster. So you know, it's 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 such a strange argument. It's like it's it's weird because it's like you're asked to suspend dis like disbelief for. Yeah, it's the whole point. Like, you can't do that for every aspect of it. It's weird. I think there's a deeper thing at play here, too, socially. I think that as people become less and less um, adept with their hands, people become less and less mechanical over time. You know, I think that people don't like practical effects. And instead, it's like, especially because nerds, movies and sci-fi in particular are the domain of nerds, whom we (laughs) hate. They want to see it as like a validation of their own particular nerd abilities, which which is, is... computers that's what nerds understand nerds don't understand using their hands to make things from scratch unless because it's like that's not in their, that's not in their wheelhouse or something 
Yeah, exactly. They're not they're they're not familiar with so the idea of 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 being like I I mean, it, it's crazy to think about, but there was like a time when it was like what the, the tweens, the preteens, the youth would be doing would be like they would be making their own like ventriloquist dummies and shit. And like, that's not what nerds are in today, into today. So they're not interested in seeing things like ventriloquist dummies. And I would much rather see a ventriloquist dummy. Jabba the Hutt should be a ventriloquist dummy. Oh this is when we go into the like... I mean, I have a lot of feelings about. Puppets, I feel but- like Candace really crowbarred ventriloquist <laughs> dummies into it, purely because it of her interest kind of in ventriloquist dummies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love ventriloquism. Okay, and there should have been ventriloquism in the thing, and that's one of my major criticisms of Carpenter is the fact that I it's mean- not ventriloquism. Is there ventriloquism in any Carpenter movie? I can't think of one. <laughs> Does Christine speak? Is technically in Christine, uh, okay. like when the car uses the radio to speak. Is that that's not the same as shoving your hand up the butthole of a Charlie McCarthy doll, which is the oh only real legends only. Like Adrian Barbeau works at that radio station in the fog, and yet there's not a single ventriloquism bit about the radio. I don't. How did you whatever turn right? the thing into fisting dummies again? <laughs> Because it's like, oh, it's like, well, you know, um, uh, puppet, <laughs> ventriloquist dummy. Well, and in some scenes, they did actually, Todd. they did actually use dumb like puppets. Like when there you go, effects weren't finished. They were like John Carpenter's, like, hey, look at this puppet. That's gonna be something scary or something <laughs> later yeah. on. Yeah, but exactly. I don't know if there was any level of ventriloquism added. Yeah, to did that. they fist any of them? He could have uh, affected some kind of voice while doing it. Who knows what that is. There's got to be fisting involved. <laughs> I feel like if we look at behind-the-scenes photos, we'll see somebody fisting a puppet somewhere. <laughs> well, some of the some of the effects were operated by people, so there yes, would have been exactly. some fisting involved with that. And my I'm favorite sure. kinds of puppets are, are marionettes, oh so God. there's no fisting involved in that. <laughs> so there doesn't need to be fisting involved, Todd. <laughs> Okay, there can be pups without fisting. So that makes well, anyway, horny. moving on from <laughs> Candace's puppet fucking rant. Literally. <laughs> the, we get into the release of the thing and the response to it. So this is, I guess, what was most surprising to me in researching it because I guess there's a level of um, cultural change that has happened which made me think, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is a great movie. Obviously, it's always been considered a great movie. Everybody must have loved this movie. Um, that is not the case, which was shocking to me. It's such a good movie. How can you not love this movie? But then again, people are very stupid. <laughs> so it's not surprising in that <laughs> way. Um, so when the thing was released, uh, it was two weeks after E.T., that it came out. And the thing is a polar opposite view of alien human encounters. <laughs> so E.T. wouldn't have had to phone home if he just <laughs> bored Elliot. This is reality, Greg. So the the E.T. was obviously a huge hit. It's a very dear favorite of Tiffany's. Um, that's literally in my Leave notes me alone. that I've written. And a favorite of Tiff's. <laughs> E.T. is a puppet. You know what? I don't like it anymore. <laughs> so at, at the box office, E.T. Uh, made $792 million and adjusted for inflation, that's $1,278,000,000. Whereas the thing, the thing made 
$19 million and adjusted for inflation at $60 million, the box office. So quite a market difference between the two. And like very obviously Mouser made a mistake in not being in ET and choosing the thing. It's very like we would make that choice. We would. If we're like the difference between $1 billion and $60 million. <laughs> Um, but when when faced with that box office failure, Carpenter said, I'd made a really grueling dark film and I just don't think audiences in 1982 wanted to see that. And they wanted to see E.T. and the thing was the opposite. So, like, there are a number of interpretations as to why the audiences rejected the thing. Some speculated that because it was released during a recession – it didn't really appeal to audiences because it was quite a obviously shitty time. And they're like, we don't need more fucking shit. Like we need some positivity. So they were looking for something like ET, which was very feel good, very, I guess, gave you a sense of hope and, you know, inspired a little bit of you know, wonder. Whereas the thing obviously does not do that unless you're like a hair care commercial. <laughs> yeah. Audiences default to escapism in dark times because they're extremely, as you said, <clears throat> stupid. Uh, but then some other people blame the oversaturation of sci-fi and fantasy in the same year. So at the same day that the thing came out, Blade Runner came out. Uh, and then in the same season, uh, Conan the Barbarian, Poltergeist, Road Warrior and Tron all came out around the same time. So there's a lot kind of going on. And Universal really didn't compete on a market standpoint. So they really just didn't market the thing and they didn't make a big deal about the effects and or anything about it. And so obviously it just it didn't make any money, which uh, it's so crazy to me because it's like, why wouldn't you sell this movie? And since we're children of, of the recession, I, it's interesting because I don't know. I, I think that the, the tone works so well and is what makes the thing so much more relevant than the bulk of science fiction films released in the 1980s. It still feels fresh and it, it feels important. It feels significant. It feels like it has something to say, which you, which you it cannot at all be said for a lot of the movies that were released uh, of some of the ones you just named. I mean, what are you saying? Conan the Barbarian <laughs> isn't a seminal piece of cinema? Well, you know, it did give us, you know, a Republican governor of California. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what's so fucked, though, is like that it, that it flopped so hard in comparison with Blade Runner, because Blade Runner is also like dark and, mm. you know, pessimistic. But people just fucking love Harrison Ford. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I was going to say Harrison Ford in 1982 is quite a selling point. Yeah, yeah. he's so lazy. He's just <laughs> such a lazy actor. I, you know, a bit of. Harrison Ford thing. Um, my, my uncle, I, I should disclose this probably now. I come from a family of actors who achieved minimal commercial success, but um, <laughs> were always, you know, very, very talented people and who, who still work occasionally. Most of them are retired. And one of my uncles said that his biggest pet peeve with Harrison Ford, really of any actor, he just, he couldn't stand watching Harrison Ford perform because so that Harrison Ford, when he has to do heavy emotional lifting in a scene, his instinct is to screw up his face like he just smelled a fart. <laughs> and once you hear that, you can't watch a Harrison Ford movie without seeing it. I mean, in fairness, I don't watch many Harrison Ford movies where he has to portray any level of emotion. <laughs> um, I'm more into the Air Force One kind of side of things where it's just like, he's the president and now he's, you know, doing something ridiculous that no human could do. I mean, I'm not here for his emotional depth. <laughs> Harrison Ford, don't come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, so aside from audiences not loving it, not picking up what it was throwing down, um, critics were particularly cruel in their assessment of it at the time. So of the New York Times, the review in there by Vincent Canby said, John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it seems as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory-concocted special effects with actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. So this is kind of the tone Mm. our good friend Roger Ebert... (laughs) considered the film to be scary but offering nothing beyond original special effects he called it a bath bag movie a geek show a gross out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen the tone of all these reviews is really quite aggressive and malicious like bold from the man who wrote beyond the valley of the dolls (laughs) these people crazy it was so like all the quotes I found are so vitriolic. They're so like I was taken aback. I was like, "What the fuck is wrong with everybody?" Like um, this other one here is is so it's it's I guess this very illusory. But um, Alan Spencer of the of Starlock, which was originally a Star Trek fan magazine that branched out into um, just all things sci-fi. Um, he said, I've seen John Carpenter's thing twice, once with a paying audience and the second time in a private screening. Uh, both times the reactions were the same. Then again, when anyone passes by a city dump, who on earth likes the smell? John Carpenter's the oh thing my God. smells and smells pretty bad. It bears plenty of Carpenter's trademarks as a director. It has no pace, sloppy continuity, zero humor, bland characters on top of being totally devoid of either warmth of humanity. So it's like... <laughs> That is so strange. It's so crazy. You know, I, I think it's kind of a recurring theme in film history is that when you have a, a, a director who's as commercially successful as Carpenter, the biggest sin you, one can commit is making a flop. And people seem to glory in the fact that Carpenter had made a flop. But the thing is... And it's so unfair. He hadn't made that many hits up until this point, though. Well, yeah, but I think Halloween was just such an enormous moneymaker. I I don't know. You see, I mean, you see it. I bring up Hitchcock every single fucking podcast, but (laughs) it happened with Hitch. um, And your good friend, Hitch. My good friend, Hitch. My buddy, Hitch. That's what the Will Smith movie is about, right? (laughs) Hitch. (laughs) Look, I am Joel McRae. So uh, (laughs) Hitch... It happens. It happens. It's just. It's just a thing. People want to get those. They want to get those blows in. You know, because that's the time. That's when you can kick somebody. Is when they're when they're down. When they've made a a disaster. You know, and there's a reason why people are mean to, to Warren Beatty after Ishtar and not like Reds. You know, like it's just a thing that I, happens. I guess. Yeah. I mean, they do like they do revel. I mean, if you're a critic, you will. He did direct Ishtar. In. I should I should say that I do know that Warren Beatty did not direct Ishtar <laughs> because somebody's going to fucking say something. I know Warren Beatty didn't direct Ishtar. Anyway, continue. Sorry. I don't think any Warren Beatty fans are fucking listening. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I guess like I can understand the compulsion people would have to kick others when they're down. But I guess just the vitriol in this is is at a level I just didn't anticipate for a film that has since 
come to be regarded as one of the best horror films of all time. The quintessential moron movie of the 80s is killing me. I know it was only 1982, but there's a lot of The 80s is a spectacularly there. dumb decade because it's the Reagan era. Some of the sci-fi films we have seen from the 80s are like on a completely different level of like yeah, just dumbness that I don't... What are these critics comparing it to? Have they seen Flight of the Voyager? I just, I don't know. No, is it Flight of the Voyager or Flight of the Navigator? Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator. Didn't Mac and Me come out? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, the uh, actor Kenneth Toby, who was in the Thing from Another World, and director Christian Nivey also got in on the criticism. Uh, Nivey said, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. Toby singled out the visual effects, saying they were too explicit, that they actually destroyed how you were supposed to feel about the characters. They became almost a movie in themselves and a little too horrifying. So I was like, okay, pussies. Like, Yeah, they're babies. Piss babies. That's a good endorsement for the special effects. They're so good that they feel like whole entities unto themselves. Yeah, they're supposed nice to. Nice unintentional compliment, asshole. also like no i was just gonna say i think there's this recurring thing and it's a claim that people still level against the thing is that there's there's a problem with with character development and there's not like a cohesive like arc for for the characters involved and like i get it mac is like really the only one who has like a real i I guess traditional arc but that's the other thing people are always like looking for like a hero's journey type easily digestible luke skywalker arc when that obviously doesn't need to exist in all sci-fi just like it doesn't exist in all narrative and doesn't exist in fucking real life go outside of the house i just i guess that expectation is like it doesn't need to like these people have this story is about people interacting with something that they have never experienced before and it's it's really a like their response is the story that's the arc they have they have who they were before this happened, who they are during, and then who they are after. And we only get, obviously, two people at, in the after point, but there is still some kind of arc that happens, whether it's not, like, it's not necessarily character development in that point, but you're just seeing people respond to a situation and that's i don't know why people see that we need to have more than that i think part of the problem is that because the cast is so large i mean relatively for such like a contained film is that people expect there to be like distinct like it's not it's not a coen brothers movie carpenter's <laughs> character development has never been carpenter's strong point you know no. um you are you're never there are a lot of characters in this movie and there probably don't need to be as many characters as many scientists working on the base as there are i think you could absolutely cut that down like there are some of the people i'm just like i don't remember seeing this person before i know it's like what, what do you need you, you need Nalls, you need childs you know you need you need blair you need fuchs you need clark and like that you know whatever like that's it like <laughs> we could cut this cast in half but people i think expect too much i i don't know it's stupid and i feel like it's a dumb criticism to level against it and people still complain about that today is that like oh well they're just but i think that there's the really standout sequence in the film which is always my favorite when when they're testing the blood to see whether it's human blood and you see the individual character reactions and you see that exact dynamic that exists between them as teammates and as i guess opponents in that particular moment is such a a, a well done you know you you see everything shift in that moment get me out of here cut me loose Cut me the hell Come on, get me out of here! Come on, get me out of here! Cut me loose, damn it! 
I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! I think Carpenter is better at that than people give him credit for. And I think people are approaching it from this kind of like, people want like a Godfather style character ensemble cast with, with, with a lot of character development for each individual person in a movie where dogs turn into like hentai. Is it hentai where they have the tentacles? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, whichever one that is. I'm sure the nerds would know. The nerds who complained would know what I'm talking about. After we insulted them, are they even listening? No, they're not. They clocked out when we said that homosexuality isn't the inverse of masculine development. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, so I guess to me that was the most surprising thing in researching this, seeing just like the the sheer level of yeah vitriol directed at it. When the audience perception has obviously shifted a lot like after it came out on vhs um obviously people were a little bit more receptive to the fatalistic vision and i my theory is that after the whole reagan administration had been through they were a lot more accepting (laughs) of nihilism and (laughs) fatalism as a narrative um and i guess that the hangover from whatever it was in 1982 where they were looking for that hope and that I guess a more positive outlook uh, had diminished and they could better accept uh, the vision that Carpenter had. And then I think it was like, there's this quote here from Peter Nichols in 1992. He said, the thing is a black uh, memorable film that may yet be seen as a classic. So even then, I guess critical opinion was beginning to shift away from people writing it off. So that's just 10 years later. But I'm sure to John Carpenter it felt like an eternity. But then now it's like all these critics come out and they say, oh, it's one of the best films of all time. It's one of Carpenter's most accomplished and underrated directorial efforts. It's one of the greatest greatest and most elegantly constructed B-movies ever made. You know, like is always included on the best horror films lists and all of that stuff. So it's like it's interesting how much of a difference, I guess, 15 to 20 years can make in critical evaluation of a movie. Like the movie hasn't changed. The movie is the same and it has always been the same. It's the audience, you know, has changed and the critical evaluation has changed, which I guess happens with every movie. Some films that were really big in like, you know, the classic days you – watch them now and you're like hmm this isn't good that's very racist (laughs) but um I guess in this context it just is it was interesting to me you know because you don't if you're not reading into it you wouldn't know that it was so hated when it came out and it came very close to completely ruining John Carpenter's career because it was such a huge flop and like it kept him out of studio films for a very long time yeah what did he do next do we do we know that offhand um i believe like this was his period where he made like christine um christine starman big trouble in little china (laughs) fucking starman yeah um i have this quote from here in 2011 he said that it is close to if not his favorite film in his own filmography 
He lamented that it took a long time for the thing to find an audience, saying, If the thing had been a hit, my career would have been different. I wouldn't have made had to have made the choices that I made, but I needed a job. I'm not saying I hate the movies I did. I loved making Christine and Starman and Big Trouble in Little China. All those films, but my career would have been different. <laughs> so, I mean, like, those films aren't necessarily... I mean, Starman will have to have a whole episode on because it is a fucking wild ride. But, um, like, obviously, like, they weren't the worst, like, films. They're accomplished movies, I think. I guess Um, they're just not on the same, like, budget level as, like, a studio picture would have been. Um, so maybe, like, they would have been enhanced by him not having had this failure on his, you know, and he would have had more opportunities to make other films, I think, is what he's saying. Like, I think he got pulled from a lot of scripts after this so I mean on one hand it's a shame that it did do that because he obviously could have made some cool movies but on the other hand it's like the movies that he did make were okay (laughs) they were fine yeah he didn't do too bad with what he was handed it's a little bit like I'm gonna be crucified for this but get ready for this hot take incoming. He reminds me a little bit of Von Stroheim because Von Stroheim gets really pulled back from the machinery of Hollywood and being able to helm, you know, top pictures. But then he makes shit like the great Gabo, Gabu, uh, the the ventriloquist dummy movie. Are you fucking? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh no, the great the the great Gabo, the great Gabo. My brain was just like broken for a second. Gabo, Gabo, Gabo. Did you see that? Yeah. What's Gabo? I figure it's some guy's name. Some guy named Gabo. I'm like the great Gabo. What the fuck is she talking yeah, about? It's 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 a it's a James Crow's movie where um von Stroheim plays a, a ventriloquist. But yeah, um, yeah. You just, it's but okay. So the point the point of what, of what I'm trying to say here is that um you can lose your studio position and the trappings of being a studio director and then still continue to do interesting and innovative work. And hmm. um, people will hold that against you. And I think Carpenter is a really good example of somebody who rose above that. Because, like, I think, like, They Live is a good example of... Yeah. I don't know what the budget was for They Live, but it's one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's such a good movie. It's an amazing movie. And um, I'm pretty sure it came out after this, too. Yeah, it's 88. <clears throat> yeah, so... Talk about practical effects. I mean, you know... I know. It's such a good movie. And, like, even some of his shitty 90s movies um are like they're uh, they're enjoyable like you always can watch them like even that weird ghosts of mars or whatever that was that we watched i mean i didn't understand a single thing that was fucking happening and the fact that it was like (laughs) the whole thing was a flashback within a flashback i was like what is happening job but i still like enjoyed it (laughs) so i mean does that make him a successful director like if you're making movies that people want to watch isn't that all it is yeah. Are we arguing that John Carpenter is good? Well, I have reservations about saying <laughs> that blanketly. I mean, I, I have to go down that path because I compared him to, you know, to, to, to Von Stroheim. So I, I think I'm already yeah. committed to that. I mean, what we're saying is that he's not bad. He's not bad. That's about the highest praise <laughs> you're going to find on this show, apparently. Um, Excuse me. Uh. I feel like we were pretty effusive about Frank Hennon Lauder, so <laughs> all things true. considered, as effusive as you can be, yeah. Just wait until we talk about people that we actually like. <laughs> oh, God, I know. <laughs> 
But yeah, that's pretty much all I've I've got on the thing. Other than that, if you haven't seen it, at this point you probably should. We didn't really explain the plot of it, but um, at this point you should have already seen it. Um, what are some good moments from the thing? I wrote down my, one of my favorite bits, which is kind of a running gag for a little while at the beginning of the movie, is that Kurt doesn't give a fuck about like the subtle like gradations between Nordic countries when he keeps yeah. referring to the Norwegians as Swedes. <laughs> It's up to you, Mac. If you don't want to fly, we don't fly. You really want to save those crazy Swedes, huh? Norwegians. Hey, Sweden! Not Swedish, Mac, the Norwegian. He's so funny to me and extremely relatable as an American. So <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of the thing. It's just those little bits and pieces of texture that he gets right, you know, that Carpenter gets right. But I like the the shift where everyone is like really ready to follow McCready and then that shift that happens like when he's off on his own. Yeah, and they're like, oh, fuck. They're all like, oh, what if, what if he's an alien? And like the... That that's when the paranoia really amps up. Like I mean, it's yeah. always present, but it like really amps up there. And then the scene when they're testing the blood, it's like for the action that's happening, not a lot is going on, but like just the significance, like the tension that builds in that scene is so intense because it's like all he's doing is putting some heat near some blood, but like you're on the edge of your seat the whole time because you're just like, oh my god, what if this one's the alien? I, I really like that, and I I think I overall, unlike idiot critics in the 80s, uh, I like the nihilistic approach to it and how you don't know what happens at the end, like once the credits roll, you, you're left wondering and you're left sort of in this place where it's like, well, fucking hell, everything's pretty shitty, and they're going to die, they're going to freeze death, but it's like sometimes... That's what you want out of a movie. Like, not every movie needs to end with, you know, as the Universal exec said, like the creature being killed with orchestral music playing, you know, like it, yeah. it, a film can stand on its own. This might say a lot about what I like in a movie, but I honestly, one of my favorite parts in the entire thing is when Wilf Wilford Brimley is in the tool shed <laughs> and he's trying to convince Kurt Russell that he's like totally <laughs> I don't want to stay out here anymore. I want to come back inside. Funny things. I hear funny things yeah. out here. Did you come across fukes? It ain't fukes. It ain't fukes. Now, I'm not going to harm anybody, and there's nothing wrong with me. And if there was, I'm all better now. I'd like to come back inside. Now, you got my promise. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, man. I want to come back inside, don't you understand it? I'm all right. I'm much better. And I won't harm anybody. And you've got to let me come back inside. It's also got, like, the noose kind of framed in the window. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's good. I just love all the casual, like, cuts to weapons. Like, the guy's drinking his fucking whiskey and then he's, like... Just his guns there, just whipping out his Glock. Like when when they're doing the whole blood testing thing, and then Donald Moffat is like, "I'd rather not spend the rest of winter tied to this fucking couch." And that he's yelling at them. <laughs> That's a really good bit. Um, the bit I mentioned I mentioned earlier when uh, Nalls is is roller skating through the kitchen, and I can't remember who says it. I I honestly I can't remember. If it's like Fuchs or Palmer or something. But somebody goes, "Will you turn that crap down? I was shot today." 
about his music playing. Balls, will you turn that crap down? I'm trying to get some sleep. I was shot today. Good movie. Really good It's movie. a great movie. In terms of horror and the horror canon, it is quite a different entry because it is in that sci-fi field, sci-fi horror, which I guess is like, it's a genre I particularly enjoy. Like I like when it's done well. Uh, Alien is another one of my favorite movies. And I really appreciate like, when it's not strictly sci-fi and it's not strictly horror, when there's like a good balance between the two and one is not necessarily secondary to the other. Um, I think that this film is a, a good depiction of like a, a good balance of those two um, genres. Has it been replicated recently? Like to a degree, no, because as we keep saying, modern horror is a shit show and <laughs> there's – really no nothing on the same level that i've seen like obviously there's been good horrors like you know get out and things like that but yeah but not not practical effect heavy horrors not practical effect heavy horror or sci-fi horror like in that no realm and i I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that there's not Hollywood's not as big as it once was. Filmmaking is no longer as big as it once was, and um, there's not as much money going around as it once was. And part of that's due to you know the consolidation of the studios, and part of that is due to the fact that movies are expensive and they make a lot of money, the bulk of their money probably for these. I don't know. I, streaming is big now, and you can't. Something like the thing is best appreciated on on the big screen and Mm. that's just not movies are not oriented towards that anymore that's not how movies are produced anymore and so then you would you would be hard pressed to be able to justify the budget and the time and um the sheer manpower required to pull off things like the practical effects and the thing yeah that's true that's sad it's, it's sad but you know i mean they got themselves into this fucking position so i'm also not sympathetic (laughs) <laughs> the only person I feel bad for is I'm not gonna say Carpenter. I'm gonna say Richard Mazur for not getting that part in ET. He should have done that. <laughs> he should not have. Do you reckon it haunted him? To, like just laying awake at night, twenty years later, just being like that fucking alien picked the wrong <laughs> fucking alien. <laughs> I mean, it would haunt me. It haunts me, and it didn't happen. To me. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess hopefully that um, met. I won't say ex- exceeded, but hopefully that met your expectations for my presentation. Hell yeah. Um, and and Todd, why don't you take it for next week? Give a little tease. Join Candace and I next week on October 1st for another bonus episode about two of Anthony Mann's early B-movies from Republic Pictures, the 1943 musical Nobody's Darling and the 1944 noir Strangers in the Night. Then come back in two weeks' time on October 8th for a full-length episode with the whole squad back together to talk about Otto Preminger's 1944 seminal classic, Laura. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, CastBox, uh, probably other places. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Tumblr, all at BasketPod. And check out our WordPress for credits and show notes and other fun stuff at whatsinthebasket.home.blog. Thank you. But anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank Thank you. you. All right, over and out, I guess. Over and out. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. 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 (laughs) 
These fucking European names, huh? Hard to pronounce. Stop being racist against Italians, Amelia. <laughs> what have they given me? Pasta? <laughs> I shot my shoot. Uh, shoot my shot. She Let's shot her shoot. Shot my shoot. Shoot my <laughs> If you leave this in, Tiffany, I will kill you. <laughs>